The Doctor's Plot, a presentation made by Paul Cannon to the Stalin Society in London in December 2019. The Doctor's Plot refers to allegations made against a group of doctors who worked in the Soviet Union and were accused of purposely providing poor treatment to notable leaders of the USSR. The plot became a popular piece of anti-communist propaganda for three chief reasons. Firstly, because the doctors were said to have plotted against some of the most well-known Soviet leaders, including Shabakov and Shtarnov, who died mid to late 1940s. Secondly, the case against the doctors, which was laid immediately prior to Joseph Stalin's death, was dropped almost immediately afterwards, seemingly of one of a number of tumultuous events around that time. Thirdly, some of those accused were Jewish. This final aspect has led to wild accusations that Stalin was anti-Semitic and furthermore that the Soviet Union was anti-Semitic. In recent years, virulent anti-communist scholars like Vladimir P. Naumov have published terrifying books which seek to link Soviet communism and Stalin in particular with anti-Semitism. Stalin's last crime, a partisan title if there ever was one, purports to use previously unseen Soviet records to reach its biased conclusions. Its author, Naumov, can hardly be considered an objective judge. This man, who was lucky enough to have access to so many so-called unseen records, was appointed under a state criminal and traitor, Mikhail Gorbachev, to the job of Executive Secretary of the Presidential Commission for the Rehabilitation of Repressed Persons. It is from such men that the more recent books published in this area have been written. This is an individual charged with and paid to find persons condemned for anti-Soviet activity to rehabilitate. This remit obviously did not extend to rehabilitating Marxist-Leninists who were brutally eliminated at Khrushchev's hands. Naumov has excellent links with the USA. He co-authored another equally unbalanced book bearing a similarly inflammatory title which compared the actions taken by the CPUSB against the executive leadership of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee as a pogrom and inquisition. He was aided in this by Joshua Rubinstein who in his youth in the 1970s travelled to Russia where he helped to smuggle anti-Soviet literature to the West before taking up employment for 37 years at Amnesty International. On his personal website, Rubinstein talks about a more recent pogrom, that against the Palestinian Arabs in occupied Palestine in relatively mild terms, saying that more could have been done to have avoided killing 1,300 Palestinians, but that, quote, Israel has every right to defend itself, unquote. While clearly he thinks that a communist state has no right whatsoever to defend itself against hostile and murderous anti-communists, especially if they happen to be Jewish. A very interesting and well-researched presentation on the Doctor's Plot was given by Bill Bland to the Stalin Society in 1991. Some of this research has been utilised here, though I have not supported all of Bill's conclusions and inferences. Comrades who wish to reacquaint themselves with Comrades Bill's piece may be interested to know that it has been transcribed online and is available at the website known as The Espresso Stalinist. In our archives, a tape recording of Bill Bland's presentation exists, and it is hoped that in due course, comrades of the CPGBML will make this available online. A number of events after the victory of the Soviet Union in in the Great Patriotic War provide evidence that the class struggle in the USSR greatly intensified. Generally, the struggle waged was between a proletarian revolutionary line and a right deviation. The forces who participated in this struggle also varied, and the conflict took on many forms, with the clearest and most violent being the participation of the military in the removal of Marxist-Leninist leaders in leading government positions. Bourgeois scholars since then have traced various threads of this struggle in an attempt to understand it but without understanding its class basis. Bourgeois historiography therefore leaves us with half a dozen power struggles, all of which are concerned with the individuals and all of which ignore the class struggle, i.e. the very real political differences that had arisen between the participants 
reflecting very different real class interests. Numerous books describe the struggle between the security apparatus and the party, between the military and the political power, between the state and the party, between Malenkov and Zhdanov, between Beria and Khrushchev, and even between Moscow and Leningrad. All of these have some basis in reality. There are reasons why Leningrad was the scene of Kirov's grisly murder and was the city from which the CPUSB propagandists gave support to the anti-Soviet literature of Akhmatova and Zoshenko. Leningrad had been, after all, the home of the Zinovievites. After Khrushchev came to power, the aims of this struggle were clearer for all to see and are charted in Harpal Bra's book Perestroika, The Complete Collapse of Revisionism. Proletarian internationalism ceased to be the sole guiding principle of the foreign policy of the USSR, and Lenin's thesis on peaceful coexistence with capitalism was distorted by Khrushchev to mean surrender to capitalism, while the strengthening of the forces of the market in economics was surreptitiously embarked upon, eventually being realized in Perestroika and Glasnost, and the liquidation of the world's first proletarian state. The ideological exponents of these forces existed during Joseph Stalin's lifetime, and his entire lifetime was devoted to their defeat, always from the correct Marxist-Leninist revolutionary proletarian standpoint. In the aftermath of the Second World War, fierce and public ideological struggle was waged in biology, philosophy, music, literature and art. Indeed, to varying degrees, it was gripped by many other branches of social life. Powerful contributions to Marxism-Leninism are made by Andrei Zhanov and Joseph Stalin in this period, not least Zhanov's speeches on the international situation made it to the common form, his talk at the meeting of the philosophical workers and his attacks on bourgeois writers and their supporters in the Communist Party. In the field of economics, the revisionism which is tackled by Joseph Stalin in his Economic Problems of Socialism in the USSR had been pursued by economists led by Voznenensky and which led to the Leningrad Affair, a purge of important officials embracing market socialism who were determined to introduce reforms to substitute a market economy for the existing centrally planned economy. The last two public contributions in the struggle waged by Marxism-Leninism in the USSR, known to this writer, are made by Stalin in The Problems of Linguistics and the Economic Problems of Socialism in the USSR, published to coincide with the 19th Party Congress in 1952. This struggle against counter-revolutionary ideas and forces was also expressed inside the organs of state power. The Leningrad Affair, and a Mingrelian affair, a purge of Georgia nationalists operating as communists, and the doctor's plot are all parts of this struggle. Some short time before the death of Andrei, of Andrei Zhdanov, a Kremlin doctor, Lydia Timashuk, wrote to Stalin. In her letter, she expressed her opinion that doctors had incorrectly diagnosed Zhdanov and had given him the wrong treatment. And Andrei Zhdanov died in a Russian sanatorium in August 1948 from a heart attack. The letter from Dr. Timoshuk found its way to the Soviet security apparatus, which began an investigation. This investigation became what is known as the doctor's plot. From the very beginning, the course, direction and outcome of this investigation was tied up in the ideological struggle raging in the Soviet security apparatus and the Communist Party. The investigation was handled by Marxist-Leninists as well as revisionists. Numerous persons were arrested and punished in connection with their role in the plot. The history of this affair, available to Western English-speaking audiences, is largely the history concocted by Robert Conquest and a few lesser but equally anti-communist so-called historians. A book by one of the surviving doctors, E. Rapoport, translated into English and published at the, set at the time of the collapse of the USSR, added to the noxious store. Nowhere is the account of Marxist-Leninists to be read, for it is they who were the victims, shot, executed and imprisoned as a result of the general struggle which raged in these years 
and surrounded the doctor's plot. It has only been in recent times that Russian historians have been able to look at it again from at this period of Soviet history. The various names of Soviet security apparatus conjure up very different images and feelings in Westerners. Czechist, OGPU, NKVD, KGB are some of the acronyms understood by A-level history students to mean secret police, torture and death. But the Soviet security services were far more diverse in their work than such stereotypes suggest and the organization of the service was constantly changing and evolving as life threw up new challenges for the Soviet state. For the purposes of this inquiry, it is instructive to look at the changes to people's, the People's Commissariat of Internal Affairs NKVD, after World War II. Bill Bland believed that the various changes were detrimental to the socialist state. Pre-World War II, the People's Commissariat of Internal Affairs, NKVD, was established in the early 1930s. It was a vast organisation with many departments, not limited to combating crime, but also running the Soviet prison system, managing vast construction works of national significance, policing the Soviet borders, and in charge of foreign intelligence. The NKVD in these times included a main directorate of state security, the GUGB, and it was the GUGB which was responsible for fighting espionage, counter-revolution, sabotage, and so on. Counter-revolutionaries operated inside the NKVD, Yagoda and Yezov. The most prominent, the most prominent were eventually replaced with the Georgian Marxist-Leninist Lavrenti Beria, whom bourgeois history remembers with venom. Although it must be said that an increasingly vocal number of Russian historians now appreciate him as a great architect of modern Russia and a man who has been unjustly treated by history. In 1941, the NKVD, headed by Beria, was split into two. The People's Commissariat of Internal Affairs of the USSR, under Beria, was created alongside the People's Commissariat of State Security of the USSR, the NKGB, under Vesevelod Merukulov, a Marxist-Leninist, over the course of the next months, there was a continuous reshuffling of responsibilities and departments. Each branch of the security organs had multiple sub-branches for everything from transport, economics to po and politics, to border forces, highways, and a workers' peasants' militia. By the end of the year, the two parts were once again brought together as a People's Commissariat of Internal Affairs led by Beria, with Merkulov his deputy. In 1943, a decree of the President of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR brought about the transfer of military counterintelligence into the People's Commissariat of Defense and the establishment of a number of counterintelligence operations collectively known as Smirsh. At the, end of, at the head of Smirsh was a legendary Soviet intelligence operative, Viktor Abakumov. In Comrade Bill Bland's view, Abakumov, Merkulov and Beria were staunch Marxist-Leninists. Their service before, during and after the war, and their treatment at the hands of Khrushchev would suggest that this is a correct view. At the conclusion of World War II, a number of significant motives were made to reorganise the security apparatus. It was Bill Bland's view that this reorganisation weakened the Soviet security apparatus. These, the changes were that Smirsh was abolished, the NKVD became the Ministry of Internal Affairs, MVD, headed by Sergei Kruglov, whom Bill Bland refers to as a concealed revisionist. A ministry, ministry of State Security, MGB, was formed, headed by Viktor Abakumov, whilst Lavrentry Beria headed the top-secret Special Committee on the Use of Atomic Energy and publicly worked on the Operations Bureau of the USSR, responsible for industrial enterprises and transport in the period of Reconstruction. It is interesting to note that, in addition to these measures, a decree passed in 1945 recertified the special security ranks of security operatives to equivalent military ranks. In this way, Lavrinti Beria became a marshal of the Soviet Union, on a par with Grigory Zhukov. In Pravda, on the 11th of July 1945, prominence was given 
to the conferring of these new ranks on Beria and hundreds of other security workers. Beria and Merkulov were pictured on the front page along with an announcement by the measure and messages from Stalin. I have been unable to read the July decree in full, but it is self-evident that one aspect of the move was to elevate the status of MVD workers and place them at least on a par with those military men whose popularity at the end of the great patriotic war was so immense. The reasons for this are well understood by any student of history and should be carefully studied by socialists. State control over the armed forces continues to be a decisive factor in the survival of the Bolivarian revolution in Venezuela and was a crucial aspect in the counter-revolutionary coup against Evo Morales in Bolivia, which we have all just witnessed. A secret order published after the collapse of the USSR alleges that a counter-revolutionary plot in the army was uncovered and swiftly dealt with by the NKVD in 1946. Quote, Order number 009 on June 9, 1946, signed by Stalin, documented charges against Zhukov for lack of modesty, overweening personal ambition, and ascribing to himself the sole role in the implementation of all major wartime operations, including those in, in which he played no role, role at all. Zhukov was demoted to commander of the Odessa military district. The order also stated that Marshal Zhukov, feeling embittered, decided to group around himself failed, discontented commanders who had been, give, who had been relieved from their post thus putting himself into opposition to the government and to the high command. Zhukov repented that he had awarded an order of the Red Star to the famous singer Ruslanova. Only the Supreme Soviet could award such a medal." Quote. In 1951, Viktor Abakumov was dismissed as Minister of State Security and replaced with Semyon Ignatiev, an ally of Nikita Khrushchev. Abakumov was accused by revisionists of having failed to spot enemies in Leningrad during the Leningrad affair. It is telling that after Stalin was dead, Khrushchev saw to it that Abakumov was shot. He was executed not for the crimes for which he had been arrested, but their opposite. It seems quite incredible how that he was arrested for lack of vigilance in prosecuting the Leningrad affair and shot for fabricating the, the very same matter. It is likely that the real motivations of those who had Abakumov removed from his post and arrested in the first place were fearful that he would uncover their plotting, just as he had uncovered similar plotting in Leningrad. The 1930s plotters had routinely escalated repressions so as to stoke tensions and bring about chaos. Yezov's role in this has been well documented in Grover Fur's book Yezov vs. Stalin and no doubt accusations that Abakumov had been lacking in vigilance were completely fabricated by backstabbers in the ministry. At roughly, at roughly the same time that Viktor Abakumov was arrested, a number of leading Georgian Marxist-Leninists were taken into custody. The second secretary of the CC, Central Committee, of the Georgian Communist Party, Mikhail Baramia, was arrested along with the Minister of Justice, Akvensi Rapava and public prosecutor Bia Shonia. They were accused of embezzlement. Under Ignatiev's leadership as Minister of State Security, in April 1952, the First Secretary Kandidia Charvikani and Second Secretaries Rostam Shaduri and Mikhail Baramia of the Georgian Communist Party were dismissed. During the course of 1952, the charges against many of, the, of these developed into allegations of bourgeois nationalism. Quote, in November 1951, the wholesale removal of leading Marxist-Leninists in Georgia began, the offenders being charged with embezzlement, car thefts, and similar crimes. The news was, link, was leaked to Western diplomats in February 1952. A major wave of embezzlements, automobile thefts, and similar crimes in Soviet Georgia has resulted in a wholesale purge of top Communist Party and government officials in that area. Diplomatic sources report the removals began last November. The two most important officials purged were Mikhail Baramia and Rostam Shadori, secretaries of the Central Committee of the Georgian Communist Party. Unquote. 
Quote, Candida Charkivani has been relieved and a new leader, Akaki Meglads, former secretary of the important Abkhaz Regional Party Committee, has been installed in his place. Meglads carried forward on a large scale the process of removing Marxist-Leninists from responsible positions in the Georgian party. Meglads set to work to purge the party and the governmental apparatus from top to bottom. In six months, he replaced half the members of the Central Committee of the Georgian Communist Party, who had been returned in the election of 1949 and brought about a complete upheaval in the administrative hierarchy of the Republic. Several high officials removed by Meglads, notably Valerian Bakrads, Deputy Chairman of the Georgian Council of Ministers, were personal nominees of Beria. Unquote. Despite the, moval, the removal and arrest of Abakumov, the intervention of Stalin's personal secretariat ensured that the investigation into the doctor's case continued. Bill Bland uses sources from Isaac Deutsch's through to Rapoport to demonstrate the progress of the case. Quote, Ignatiev, the Minister of State Security, was a reluctant executant of orders. Ignatiev therefore remained aloof from the investigation into the doctor's case, leaving the conduct of this to his deputy, the Marxist-Leninist Ryuman. Ryuman personally supervised the investigation. Ryuman had formerly headed the state security section of Stalin's personal secretariat. Ryuman, before being appointed to the post of Deputy Minister of State Security, headed the state security section in Stalin's personal secretariat. As a result of the findings of this, of this investigation, in the summer of 1952, many doctors who had worked in the Kremlin hospital for many years and treated many statesmen were summarily fired. Among them were Miron Vovsi and Vladimir Vinogradov. The former head of the Kremlin hospital, Alexei Busalov, Mikhail Yegorov and Sofia Karpai were arrested. Unquote. On the 13th of January, 1953, Pravda carried the report of the arrest of, quote, a terrorist group of doctors who had made it their aim to cut short the lives of active public figures of the Soviet Union through sabotage medical treatment. The participants in this terrorist group, taking advantage of their, posi of their position as doctors and abusing the trust of patients by deliberate evil intent, made correct diagnosis and then doomed them by wrong treatment. Nine doctors were named as among the participants in this terrorist group, namely Professor M.S. Vovsi, therapeutist, Professor V.I. Vinogradov, therapeutist, Professor M.B. Kogan, therapeutist, Professor B.B. Kogan, therapeutist, Professor P.I. Yegorov, therapeutist, Professor A.I. Feldman, otolaryognologist, Professor Ya.G. Ettinga, therapeutist, Professor Grinstein, neuropathologist, and G.I. Myrov, therapeutist. The doctors were charged with having murdered in this way Andrei Zhanov and Alexander Shabakov, and with attempting to murder Marshals Alexander Vasilevsky, Leonid Kogorov, and Ivan Konev, together with General Sergei Shetemenko and Admiral Kordi Lavichenko. It was alleged that most of the participants in the terrorist group, M.S. Vossi, B.B. Kogan, A.I. Feldman, A.M. Grinstein, A. Yahich Yetinger, and others, were conducted with the International Jewish Bourgeois Nationalist Organization, Joint, established by American intelligence for the purpose of providing material aid to the Jews in other countries. In actual fact, this organization, under the direction of American intelligence, conducts extensive espionage, terrorist, and other subversive network in many countries, including the Soviet Union. The arrested Vovsi told investigators that he had received orders to wipe out the leading caterers of the USSR, receive them from the USA through the joint organization, via, Mos via a Moscow doctor, 
Shimlayevich and the well-known Jewish bourgeois nationalist Mikhail's. Other participant in the terrorist, participants in the terrorist group, Vian Ninogradov, M.B. Kogan, P.I. Yegorov, proved to be old agents of the British intelligence. Unquote. The full name of joint was the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, founded in the United States in November 1914 by the diffusion of three committees, ostensibly as an international charity for the assistance of Jews throughout the world. Joint still exists to this day and its website records that its operations in the USSR were restricted in the time of Stalin and not renewed again until after the collapse of the Soviet Union. An editorial in Pravda on the 13th of January 1953 reminded readers that in the 1930s a group of doctors involved in a concealed revisionist conspiracy had admitted there at their public trial to murdering a number of leading Marxist-Leninists by administering deliberately incorrect medical treatment to them. In his secret speech to the 20th Congress of the CPSU in February 1956, Khrushchev admitted that, quote, shortly after the doctors were arrested, we, members of the political bureau, received protocols with the doctors' confessions of guilt, unquote. Stalin's personal secretariat was headed by the Marxist-Leninist Alexander Poskrebyshev. Poskrebyshev had been with Stalin from the time of the Civil War. Another close comrade of Stalin's was Lieutenant General Nikolai Vlasic, who ran his security. Both these men were removed from their positions around the time that Abakimov and the Georgian party were purged. Nikita Khrushchev tells how he orchestrated Poskrebyshev's fall from grace. He describes how, during the winter of 1952-53, to he came under suspicion of leaking secret documents, and how he succeeded in deflecting the blame from himself in such a way that it fell upon Proskrebyshev. Russian historians have said that the documents which were leaked were some of the contents of Stalin's economic problems of socialism in the USSR. Quote, Stalin complained that secret documents were leaking out through our secretariats. Stalin was coming straight for me. It's you, Khrushchev. The leak is through your secretariat. I succeeded in deflecting the blow from myself, but Stalin didn't let the matter rest. After I'd convinced Stalin that the leak wasn't through my secretariat, he came to the conclusion that the leak must have been through Poskrebyshev. Poskrebyshev had worked for Stalin for many years. Stalin removed Poskrebyshev from his post and promoted someone else. Unquote. Stalin's daughter, Svetlana Aluyeva, tells the same story. Quote, Shortly before my father died, even some of his inmates were disgraced. The perennial Vlasic was sent to prison in the winter of 1952, and my father's personal security, Poskrebyshev, who had been with him for 20 years, was removed. At the time, unquote, at the time of Stalin's death, the case against the doctors was still open. On the 3rd of March 1953, a joint statement of the Central Committee of the CPSU and of the USSR Council of Ministers announced that, quote, during the night of March the 1st or 2nd, Comrade Stalin, while in his Moscow apartment, had a hemorrhage of the brain, which affected vital parts of his brain. Comrade Stalin lost consciousness. Paralysis of the right arm and leg developed. Loss of speech occurred. Serious disturbances developed in the functioning of the heart and breathing. The best medical personnel have been called in to treat Comrade Stalin. Unquote. There are ample rumours and conspiracy surrounding the death of Stalin, which occurred on the 5th of March. Stalin's daughter, Svetlana, alleged that her brother, Vasily, was said to have been imprisoned for complaining that Stalin had been murdered. Quote, he was arrested on April 18, 1953. A military collegium sentenced him to eight years in jail. He died on March 19, 1962. Unquote. Without paying much attention to these rumours and stories, the veracity of which is hard to establish, we are able to observe that, con that the continuation of the fierce struggle which now enters a more serious and violent period. Imprisonment, release, re-imprisonment and execution seems to be the theme of this period, 
as with the case of the doctors, exactly what did and didn't take place will never be known for sure. Most of the first-hand accounts of this time are based on Khrushchev's memoirs, which he smuggled out to the West during his forced retirement. The testimony of Molotov, given through Shuev, is second-hand, and, though they must have acquiesced in the machinations of Khrushchev, both Budiony and Voroshilov later wrote memoirs praising Stalin. Pavel Sudoplatov's memoirs are of interest, despite the contested nature of some of his claims, as he is a surviving colleague of both Beria and Stalin, and worked at the highest levels of the intelligence service. Khrushchev records a discussion with Nikolai Bulganin at the time of Stalin's illness as follows, quote, Stalin's not going to pull through. You know what Bose Beria will take for himself. Which one? He will try and make himself Minister of State Security. No matter what happens, we can't let him do this. If he becomes Minister of State Security, it will be the beginning of the end for us. Bulganin said he, he agreed with me. Unquote. On the 7th of March, a joint emergency meeting was called of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, the Council of Ministers and the USSR Supreme Soviet. Quote, Beria immediately proposed Malenkov for chairman of the Council of Ministers. On the spot, Malenkov proposed that Beria be appointed to first deputy. He also proposed a merger of the Ministries of State Security and Internal Affairs into a single Ministry of Internal Affairs with Beria as minister. I was silent. Bulganin was silent too. I could see what the attitude of the others was. If Bulganin and I objected, we would have been accused of starting a fight in the party before the corpse was cold." Unquote. According to Bill Band, Bland, quote, after the death of Stalin, the most urgent and immediate task which faced the revisionist conspirators was to ex exculpate the doctors. Not, of course, because they were innocent, but, on the contrary, because they were guilty and because further investigation into the case could well lead to, to the exposure of the highly placed ringleaders of the conspiracy." Unquote. On the 3rd of April 1953, the Soviet press carried out a communique issued in the name of the USSR Ministry of Internal Affairs, which announced the exculpation and release from custody of the arrested doctors. Quote, the USSR Ministry of Internal Affairs has carried out a thorough investigation of all preliminary investigation data and other material in the case of the group of doctors accused of sabotage, espionage and terrorist acts against the active leaders of the Soviet state. The verification has established that the, accu that the accused in this case were arrested by the former Ministry of State Security incorrectly and without any lawful basis. The accused in this case have been completely exonerated of the accusations against them and have been freed from imprisonment." Unquote. It was Bill Bland's contention that Beria released the doctors as part of a broader and more general overhaul of a number of other decisions that had included the arrest and purging of Marxist-Leninists. That seems sensible to this writer. It was also comrade Bill Bland's contention that this situation was a trick, a feint played on Beria to release a group of revisionists quite rightly suppressed. It was the only way to undo the unjust purges which had been directed against the Marxist-Leninists. Though there may be some not inconsiderable truth to this, it is impossible to verify. What is clear from the facts is that Beria returned to their positions a number of previously leading Georgian communists, and at the time many hundreds of thousands of other prisoners were pardoned. A number of high-profile cases, such as the investigation into the doctor's plot, were officially denounced. Sources suggest, however, that while publicly the cases were over, in the secret the Marxist-Leninists were preparing a counter-attack against the conspirators they had been forced to release. On the 14th of April 1953, the Georgian Central Committee dismissed Akaki Megladz as first secretary and Megalets admitted that the charges of nationalist deviation, which he had levelled against the former Marxist-Leninist leaders, had been fabricated. Quote, Beria now moves with speed. A plenary session of the Georgia Communist Party was held on the 14th of April 1953, 
which dismissed a party secretariat headed by A. L. Miglads and established a new one under an official named Mirz Kulava. Beria's old protege, Valerian Bakradst, whom Miglads had dismissed from government office, now became Prime Minister of the Georgian Republic. Several prominent supporters of Beria, whom Miglads and his faction had imprisoned, were released and given portfolios in the Begrads administration. The ousted First Secretary, Miglads, made an abject confession, declaring that the charges of nationalist deviation, which he had levelled against high-ranking Georgian Bolsheviks, were based on false evidence. N. Rukads, Georgian Minister of State Security, who had aided and abetted Miglads, was imprisoned. Unquote. On the 15th of April, quote, the Chief Minister of the Georgian Soviet Republic, M. Valerian Bakrads, announced that the Georgian Minister of State Security, M. Rukads, and two former Secretaries, Secretaries General of the Georgian Communist Party, M. M. Miglads and Charkavani, had been dismissed from their posts, arrested, and would be severely punished for fabricating trumped-up charges against former leading members of the Georgian government and Communist Party. At the same time, he announced that the three former ministers who had been dismissed at Rukad's instigation would be immediately restored to their former posts, that the ministries of internal security and state security would be welded into a single ministry, and that this ministry would be headed by M. Vladimir Dekanozov. Mr. Bakrads, who was addressing a meeting of the Georgian Supreme Soviet, said that a number of innocent persons had fallen victim to the baseless charges of bourgeois nationalism. Unquote. On the 16th of April, Zaria Vostoka reported a speech by Bakrads in which he said, quote, It has now been fully established by the organs concerned that the enemy of the people and party, former Minister of State Security, N.M. Rukads had cooked up an entirely false and provocative affair concerning a, an existent, a non-existent nationalism whose victims were eminent workers of our republic. Rukads and his accomplices have been arrested and will be severely punished. Unquote. On the 21st of April, Vilian Zodilava, released from prison, was made first deputy prime minister and elected to the Bureau of the Central Committee of the Georgian Party. Quote, Mrs. Zodelava was one of the three leading Georgian Party members who had been jailed on false charges declared to have been concocted by Mr. Rukads. Released from jail, he has been made first deputy chairman of the Council of Ministers and has been elected to the Bureau of the Georgian Communist Party Central Committee. Unquote. According to Bill Bland, and substantiated by the course of events, quote, by the end of June 1953, it had become clear that the efforts to convince the Marxist-Leninists that the exculpation of the doctors had been justified had only been temporarily successful. Headed by Beria, the security forces under Marxist-Leninist control, since the readjustments of portfolios after Stalin's death, were continuing to investigate the doctor's case, unquote. On the 10th of July 1953, a few days after Beria had been arrested, a leading article in Pravda revealed the real reason for Beria's arrest, a reason not disclosed in the report of his trial, namely that he had deliberately impeded and tried to distort instructions of the Central Committee and the Soviet government designed to clear up certain illegal and arbitrary actions. An obvious reference to the doctor's case, Having been charged with carrying out the, the, the instructions of the party central committee and the Soviet government with a view to clearing up certain illegal and arbitrary actions, Beria deliberately impeded the implementation of these instructions and in a number of cases tried to distort them. Over several days at the end of June 1953, the revisionist conspirators approached the other leading members of the Politburo with the baseless story that Beria was an agent of foreign imperialist powers and was plotting a coup against the party leadership. The memoirs of Suda Platov and others have since made it clear that there was no Beria plot. A statement by Beria's wife, made when she was 87, said, quote, In 1953, 
they organized a coup. They were afraid that Beria would become Stalin's successor. I knew my husband and his character well. I am sure that he would be smart enough not to fight for this place. He was a rational and practical person. He knew that after Stalin, a Georgian would never be put at the head of state. No one could imagine such an outcome of events. Lavrenti would probably help a man who claimed the post of head of party and state. Unquote. Khrushchev has described how he based his allegations against Beria on un unsubstantiated charges made at a plenum of the Central Committee in February 1937 by the revisionist Grigory Kaminsky that Beria had been an agent of, count of the counter-revolutionary Musavat Party, a nationalist party infiltrated and defeated by the Bolsheviks. Khrushchev admits, however, that, quote, I could easily believe that he, Beria, had been an agent of the Musavistists, as Kaminsky had said, but Kaminsky's charges had never been verified. We had only our intuition to go on. I took Malenkov aside and said, Surely you must see that Beria's position has an anti-party character. We must not accept what he is doing. Malenkov finally agreed. I was surprised and delighted. Comrade Malenkov and I then agreed that I should talk to Comrade Molotov. I told Molotov what sort of pe person Beria was and what kind of danger threatened the party if we didn't thwart his scheming against the party leadership. I had earlier told him how Beria had already set this plan in motion for aggravating nationalist tensions in the republics. I said, you think maybe that we should detain him for investigation? I said detain rather than arrest because there were still no criminal charges against Beria. Molotov and I agreed and parted. The Presdian bodyguard was obedient to him, Beria. Therefore, we decided to enlist the help of the military. First, we entrusted a detention to, of Beria to comrade Moskalenko, the air defence commander, and five generals. This was my idea. Then, on the eve of the, of the session, Malenkov widened our circle to include Marshal Zhukov and some others. That meant 11 marshals and generals in all. In those days, all military personnel were required to check their weapons when coming into the Kremlin, so comrade Bulganin was instructed to see that the generals were allowed to bring their guns with them. We arranged for Moskalenko's group to wait for a summons in a separate room while the session was taking place. When Malenkov gave a signal, they were to come into the room where they were meeting and take Beria into custody. Unquote. The coup was fixed to take place during a joint meeting of the Presidium of the Party Central Committee and of the Presidium of the Council of Ministers on the 24th of June 1953. At this meeting, Khrushchev reminded those present, including the gullible Marxist-Leninists in, in the words of Bill Bland, of the charges made by Kaminsky in 1937. Quote, I recalled the Central Committee plenum of February 1937 at which comrade Grisha Kaminsky had accused Beria of having worked for the Musavatist Counterintelligence Service and therefore for the English Intelligence Service when he was secretary of the Baku Party Organization. After the final speech, the session was left hanging. There was a long pause. I saw we were in trouble, so I asked comrade Malenkov for the floor in order to propose a motion. As we had arranged in advance, I proposed that the Central Committee Presidium should release Beria from his duties. Malenkov was still in a state of panic. As I recall, he didn't even put my motion into a vote. He pressed a secret button which gave the signal to the generals who were waiting in the next room. Zhukov was the first to appear. Then Moskalenko and the others came in. Malenkov said in a faint voice to Comrade Zhukov, as Chairman of the Council of Ministers of the USSR, I request that you take Beria into custody pending investigation of charges made against him. Hands up, Zhukov commanded Beria. Moskalenko and the others unbuckled their holsters in case Beria tried anything. We checked later and found that he had no gun. Beria was immediately put under armed guard in the Council of Ministers building next to Malenkov's office. Unquote. Those arrested with Beria included Vladimir Dekanozov, Vesevolod Merkulov, Bogdan Kobulov, Sergei Golitz, Pavel 
Meshik, and Levd Vlodzimersky, all of whom were Marxist-Leninists, having close connection with the state security forces. On the 14th of July 1953, shortly after Beria's arrest on the 26th of June, the revisionist conspirators moved to carry out a military coup in Georgia in order to reverse the changes made in April 1953 and restore the situation which existed there prior to this state. The situation of revisionist domination brought about by the feints of 1951-52. The leaders of the coup, which was carried out at a joint meeting of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Georgia and of the Tiflis City Committee, were two military officers, General Alexei Antonov and Major General Pavel Efimov. Quote, A.I. Antonov, General of the Army, Commander of the Transcaucasus Military District, and reputedly a friend of Zhukov's, acted soon after the news of Beria's arrest was announced from Moscow. He attended a joint plenary session of the Georgian Central and Tiflis Party Committees with a fellow officer, Major General P.I. Efimov. The latter was then elected to the Central Committee Bureau. Other army officers then took over important posts in the government and the party apparatus." Unquote. The so-called trial of Lavrenti Beria and six of his fellow Marxist-Leninists who had been associated with the security forces took place in the USSR Supreme Court on the 18th to the 23rd of December 1953. Furthermore, a new state prosecutor was specially appointed by the revisionists, the Ukrainian jurist Roman Rudenko, who then held the position until his death in the 1980s. Khrushchev commented, quote, We had no confidence in the state prosecutor, so we sacked him and replaced him with Comrade Rudenko, unquote. The state prosecutor had been Grigory Safanov, who, like Rudenko, had acted for the USSR at Nuremberg under, direct, under the direction of Andrei Vyshinsky. Vyshinsky, after the Moscow trials of the 1930s, had been deputy chairman of the People of the Council of People's Commissars with the oversight of the work of the NKVD. Vyshinsky died suddenly and unexpectedly in 1954. The deputy prosecutor had been Safanov. Rudenko, by comparison, had been a prosecutor in the Ukraine, where along with Khrushchev, he had been responsible for NKVD repressions under Yezov, repressions which were halted after 1938 with the arrival of Beria. After Rudenko was finished fighting for death sentences for Beria and his comrades, he headed up the commission to re-evaluate the cases of those accused of counter-revolutionary crimes. He also took part in a Pospilov commission that worked for Nikita Khrushchev as he prepared his infamous secret speech to the 20th Party Congress in 1956. Those tried by Rudenko alongside Beria were Vladimir Dekanozov, recently Georgian Minister of Internal Affairs, Sergei Godli Goglitz, former Georgian, Georgian People's Commissar of Internal Affairs, and recently an official of the USSR Ministry of Internal Affairs, Bogdan Kobulov, former Georgian Deputy Commissar of Internal Affairs, Vesevolod Merkulov, former USSR Minister of State Security, recently USSR Minister of State Control, Pavel Meshik, formerly an official of the USSR Ministry of Internal Affairs, recently Ukrainian Minister of Internal Affairs, and Lev Vlodzimirsky, former head of the section of the USSR Ministry of Internal Affairs for investigating specially important cases. The presiding judge at the trial was Marshal Ivan Konev, on whose appointment the New York Times commented, quote, Marshal Ivan Konev's role as the chairman of the tribunal appears to be the clearest indication to date of the greatly enhanced political power now apparently wielded by the highest Soviet military leaders. Unquote. At the end of the Beria trial, all defendants were shot. As of Stalin's death, the exact nature of events remains frequently disputed, not least in Russia, where a recent television program supports the allegations of Beria's son, that no such arrest took place as described by Khrushchev, but rather Beria was taken by surprise and executed in his home. The lack of records of Beria's trial are used as further proof.
On the 14th to the 17th of December 1954, the Marxist-Leninist former Minister of State Security, Viktor Abakumov, was tried in Leningrad before the Military Collegium of the USSR Supreme Court. Presided over by Lieutenant jo uh, Colonel E.L. Zaidan, along with Abakumov as co-defendants, appeared A.G. Leonov, former director of the MGB investigation, Investigating Division for especially important cases, V.I. Komarov and M.T. Likachev, former deputy chairman of the Investigating Division for especially important cases, I.A. Chernov and I.M. Broverman, former members of the USSR Ministry of State Security. The defendants were charged with, quote, committing the same crimes as Beria, unquote. While Abakumov was in particular charged with having, quote, fabricated a so-called Leningrad case in which many party and Soviet officials were arrested without grounds and falsely accused of very grave state crimes, unquote. All the accused were found guilty. Chernov was sentenced to 15 years in a labor camp, Broverman to 25 years in a labor camp, while Abakumov, Leonov, Komarov and Likachev were sentenced, to, were sentenced to death by shooting. Ryuman's trial lasted six days from the 2nd to the 7th of July 1953. Quote, On July the 2nd to the 7th 1954, three, the Military Collegium of the Supreme Court of the USSR examined at a court session the case of M.D. Ryuman, unquote and the report of the proceedings made it clear that he was charged with fabricating the doctor's case. Quote, Ryuman, during the period of his work in the post of senior investigator, and then as head of the section for investigating especially important cases of the former Ministry of State Security, engaged on the path of forging investigative materials, on the basis of which provocative cases were engineered and unjustified arrests were carried out of another of a number of Soviet citizens, including prominent medical workers. Unquote. In connection with this, all those found guilty in the Leningrad affair were rehabilitated, including Voznensky. A short time later, the criticism ma criticisms made by Stalin of the ideals held ideas held by Voznensky and others in his economic problems of socialism in the USSR were openly castigated by Khrushchev and others who had lauded them at the Congress, and criticism of Stalin's economic problems of socialism in the USSR was, formal, was formally made at the 20th Party Congress and in the years after. In September 1955, the military collegium of the USSR Supreme Soviet, sitting in Tiflis and presided over by Lieutenant General Chertkev, tried A. Rapava, formerly Georgian People's Commissar of Internal Affairs, Nikolai Rukats, formerly Minister of State Security, and six other defendants formerly connected with the Georgian security forces. The prosecutor was Rudenko, who again sought and won the death penalty. The eight defendants, therefore, were N.M. Rukats, Minister of State Security of the Georgian SSR, A. Rapava, Minister of State Control for the Georgian SSR, S.O. Seretelli, Minister of Internal Affairs for the Georgian SSR, K.S. Savitsky, Assistant to the First Deputy Minister of Internal Affairs of the USSR, N.A. Krimian, Minister of State Security of the Armenian SSR, A.S. Kazan, in 1937-38, Head of the First Branch of the STR of the NKVD of Georgia, and then an Assistant to the Head of the STO-NKVD of Georgia. G.I. Paramanov, Deputy Head of the Investigation Unit for Particularly Important Cases of the USSR Ministry of Internal Affairs, and S.N. Nadaria, Head of the First Division of the Ninth Directorate of the Ministry of Internal Affairs of the USSR. They were charged with, quote, high treason, terroristic acts, and participation in counter-revolutionary organizations, unquote. One of the accused was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, 1 to 25 years, and the rest, including Rapava and Rukad's death by shooting. In July 1953, after the arrest of Beria, Mir Baigarov, 
the Marxist-Leninist secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Azerbaijan, was removed from his post and shortly afterwards arrested. On the 12th to the 26th of April 1956, Bagurov and five alleged accomplices were tried by the military collegium of the Supreme Court sitting in Baku and presided over by Lieutenant General A.A. Chepstov, with Rudenko acting as a state prosecutor once more for, quote, high treason, the commission of acts of terrorism and participation in a counter-revolutionary organization, unquote. Among the other charges, it was alleged that, quote, Bagirov, with the help of his accomplices, systematically prosecuted and perpetrated terrorist acts against a number of prominent party and Soviet workers who at various times criticised his and Beria's anti-party behaviour. So on his instructions, they were illegally arrested and convicted on falsified materials. Former chairman of the Azerbaijan Cheka, N. Rizayev, People Com People's Commissars of Education of Azerbaijan, SSR, M. Shakbazov, and M. Zhuwalinsky, head of the film photo department of industry, Sultanov, deputy head of the department of Azerbaijan, NKVD, Nodev, former employee of the Azerbaijan Cheka, I. Shamsov, former chairman of the People's Commissariat of the Socialist Soviet Socialist Republic, G. Musabekov, former deputy chairman of the P Council of People's Commissars of the ZSFSR, Husseyov, former secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Azerbaijan, Mirzoyan, former chairman of the Cuban District Executive Committee, Mamdakov, former People's Commissar of Agriculture of the Republic of Azerbaijan, Husseyov, People's Commissar of Justice of the Republic of Azerbaijan, Sultanova, Deputy Commissar of Agriculture of the Republic of Azerbaijan, Garen, and others. Unquote. The accused were all found guilty. Two of the, of the defendants were sentenced to 25 years imprisonment, while the three, including Bagirov, were sentenced to death by shooting. On the 21st of August 1953, Lieutenant General Sudoplatov was arrested. On September 12, 1958, he was sentenced by the Military Collegium of the Supreme Court of the USSR under, quote, counter-revolutionary, unquote, Article 58 to 1, Paragraph B, to 15 years of imprisonment for, quote, active complicity with the traitor barrier in preparing a coup d'etat carrying out experiments on people, kidnapping and numerous murders, unquote. Pseudo-Platov published with his son and some US journalists a best-selling book of memoirs in the early 1990s and in 1992 he was completely rehabilitated by a, degree, by a decree of the chief military prosecutor of the Russian Federation. Pseudo-Platov's book is a mix of truly sensational stories and allegations from his time working in the Soviet security services and is clearly a collaboration between fact and fiction. What are the lessons for today? The story of the coming to power of Khrushchev is not a happy one, and it has given me no pleasure to relate it to you. In many ways, this is a story of the victory of revisionism in the USSR, though it took many more years to liquidate Soviet power. The years surrounding the death of Stalin in 1953 were tumultuous years, which saw a fierce confrontation between Marxism-Leninism and the forces of revisionism in many walks of Soviet life. A study of these is important to acquaint communists of today with a rounded history of this struggle and to learn lessons about how to fight it. As ever, a thorough study of Marxism-Leninism is our best weapon. To be familiar with the history of the proletarian revolutionary movement and to conduct oneself on the basis of firm principles are crucial. But to know these principles, to understand them, to appreciate what is a principle and what is a tactic this can only be achieved through a diligent study and the cultivation of a correct style of work in the revolutionary movement.